Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's a whole panoply of isms that fall under right-wing extremism. All of them share the view that a democratic society needs to be broken down, undermined, and, and replaced with a, a fascist or a authoritarian rule. You know, we can't pretend that this is just a problem that is reaching our shores through the internet. There are voices, some of them in mainstream media, some of them in, dare I say, mainstream politics, that are encouraging or at least giving comfort to these types of extremist groups. One thing we have to do now that we haven't done is start talking to the community. You know, we, we brought the Islamic community into the conversation. We worked with parents and grandparents and teachers and schools and, and community leaders. When it comes to right-wing extremism, we're not yet having the conversation with the Australian community about what to look for, what are the signs, what do you do when you start to hear those types of messages? Who do you call? Do you take it seriously? G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast for 2021. I'm Chris Farnham, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by the ANU National Security College and our friends at policyforum.net. Those comments you just heard were made by Senator Christina Keneally, member of Australia's Parliamentary Joint Committee, on intelligence and security. And in this episode, the first for our Security Summit stream with Professor Rory Medcalf, we'll be talking with Senator Keneally about the threat of right-wing extremism to Australia's national security. But first, we've missed you. And judging by all of the call-outs on social media and by email, you've missed us as well. Yes, we are a little bit late in getting our first episode out this year, but that's because we've been very, very busy And as a bit of an insight to what we do here at the National Security College, I can tell you that we've been working on a website that you'll be seeing from us soon on the future strategic landscape of the Indo-Pacific, which will also include a special series of podcasts. You'll also be able to read about the 1.5 track dialogues that the college has been hosting with some of our neighbours from the region that addresses regional security in the post-COVID world. It is also great to note that we are back teaching face-to-face. That's both with our executive and professional development programs for government and with our post-grad students after a long year of remote learning. But right now, let's kick off the year by introducing our new pod stream, Security Summit with Rory Medcalf. Throughout 2021, we're going to be bringing you discussions between Rory and national security leaders from across the globe. Indeed, we are set to record in coming weeks with the current head of the US mission to Australia on Australia-US security ties and the Biden administration's approach to regional security. We're also set to record with Senator James Patterson, the chair of Australia's Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, 
about the role of the committee, the important part of the legislative landscape that it occupies in Australia, as well as some of the issues the Senator is focused on as chair of the committee and as an elected official. And in this, the first episode of Security Summit, Roy is speaking to Senator Christina Keneally on the threat of right-wing extremism in Australia. Senator Keneally is the Deputy Leader of the Opposition in the Senate, where she represents the state of New South Wales, a state where she previously served as State Premier. Senator Keneally also serves as Shadow Minister for Government Accountability, and most importantly for this discussion, Shadow Minister for Home Affairs and Member of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and and security, which is currently conducting an inquiry into extremist movements and radicalism in Australia. Roy had a chat with Senator Keneally about the threat of right-wing extremism to Australia's national security just a little earlier, and we're going to listen into that discussion right now. So, Senator Keneally, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. There are so many issues we can talk about here at the National Security College, and I guess it all comes back to security one way or another. But I, I'd like to actually begin our conversation with a slightly more uh, philosophical bent, if you like, and that is about what this whole national security thing is. You know, we hear uh, political figures, uh, officials, governments talk about security all the time. I think often the public can actually glaze over a little bit because they've heard this before, but as we um, study it here at the National Security College, we're really trying to unpack uh, much more clearly what national security means and perhaps surprise people a little bit about what it really is. I mean, for example, we look at how does it relate to national interests, national values, national identity, what are the overlaps or tensions with other uh, good and necessary things such as economic well-being or social cohesion or civil liberties. So there's so much there. I'd really be interested if you could share with us uh, how you think about security, because national security is so close, of course, to your role as the uh, Shadow Minister for Home Affairs. That is a really excellent question, Rory, and it's great to be here uh, with you and your listeners. And I'd say it's an excellent question because I think you're right in the sense that phrases like national security, uh, the way they are used, they can... Um, come to mean many different things to many different people, or indeed, as you point out, for some people, it might just be language that rolls over them. Uh, you know, at its most basic, obviously, national security is about keeping Australians safe. Uh, and you know, there are the things that we think about, like secure borders, um, safe from terrorist threat, um, you know, safe from uh, physical harm. Uh, but you know, there we have to have a more expansive view of national security. And your reference there to national identity is spot on because one of the great strengths of Australia's economic um, and community um, um, uh, cohesion is that uh, we have a very multicultural, diverse, respectful, tolerant society. And, and study after study still shows that that. Australians, unlike some of our counterparts in Europe or the United States, have um, valued uh, immigration and multiculturalism. Uh, They understand it makes us economically strong. They understand that it makes us a stronger, more cohesive um, community. Now, if those values about multiculturalism and diversity are not reinforced in every generation, we risk losing them. And that undermines the cohesion that undermines the safety, it undermines the, 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 the collective mentality of who we are as Australians. 
And so when we think about national security, we have to not just think about the the, the statecraft and the weaponry and the, the infrastructure, but we also need to think about the the way in which we talk about ourselves, the way in which we uphold the the strong ties that bind us together, uh, and the way in which we react and reject uh, those um, movements, views, or um, indeed um, extremist script that would seek to tear us apart. Well, that leads us pretty directly to what I think uh, would be very useful to talk about today, and that is uh, the very strong and prominent position you've taken, particularly about concerns about right-wing extremism. So it would be really useful to understand a little bit more about what this means to you in the context of national security. I know that you're hardly the only figure in the Australian policy uh, and uh, security world who has a view about this. And for example, the um, Australian uh, Director General of of Security, the ASIO head, Mike Burgess, has emphasised that his organisation treats right-wing extremism as a high priority. In your view, why and how is right-wing extremism a national security issue? Australia, unfortunately, is not immune to a trend that is impacting the rest of the uh, particularly Western world, and that is the rise of right-wing extremist groups. And we can unpack a bit as to why that rise is happening, but certainly COVID has accelerated it. And um, when we uh, hear the ASIO Director General Mike Burgess say things like, as he has in um, committee hearings and public forums uh, in Australia, that uh, ASIO's counterterrorism work is now 40% of it focused on right-wing extremism, and that is up from about 15% in 2016. When we hear the AFP talk about the rise of right-wing extremist groups and that it takes up an increasing share of their policing work, Uh, we have to pay attention to this growing terrorist threat. And it is a terrorist threat. These are groups that have been prescribed as terrorist organizations overseas in Five Eyes countries. They are capable and have uh, perpetrated violent attacks. And indeed, um, the attacks on the U.S. Capitol uh, in um, January, uh, not all of them, of the the attackers, but uh, a great portion of them were parts of right-wing extremist groups. I think the real um, risk here that these groups pose is that they don't really, they're not really political agitators. They actually don't believe in democracy. They are trying to undermine democracy. They are trying to install fascist or dictatorial uh, governments that actually align with their objectives. And when we uh, think about the things that that pose harm to Australians, uh, you know, and it's most fundamental uh, is our democracy and our democratic institutions. But then, as I reflected earlier, our sense of national identity and cohesion. Uh, and so we, we, we have to take this threat seriously. And unfortunately, we have seen here in Australia uh, in recent weeks um, examples of uh, the National Socialist Network, the latest incarnation of a right-wing extremist group in Australia, gathering in the Grampians, you know, uh, chanting Nazi slogans, doing what looked to be a, some type of paramilitary training, terrorizing local visitors, and individuals from that same group trying to storm Channel 9 in Melbourne and, 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 and perpetrated a violent attack upon a security guard there. Uh, so, this this is a this is a growing threat and we have to take it seriously. All right, I'm going to 
test this a little bit because, uh, of course, in a democracy, uh, you know, we, we we cherish the diversity of political views that are held in this country, the, the freedom of expression to um, uh, to express those views. What is what, what's the distinction between being being simply right wing and uh, being a right wing extremist and being a violent right wing extremist? Because uh, presumably, not all uh, people of a right wing disposition are extremists, and not all extremists are, are violent. So, I do. Th- it would be useful for you to explain what you see as the uh, both the connections and also the, um, the you know the distinctions. Here. This is a really um, excellent area to explore, and it in some ways is not a, a different too different of a conversation in terms of exploring the distinctions between uh, people who are of the Islamic faith and Islamic extremists. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, there is a legitimate um, right-wing political ideology that people can hold and they can agitate for and they can argue and they can test at the ballot box and uh, that is part of the broad spectrum of political debate in an open liberal democracy like Australia. The, the fundamental difference between uh, someone who just adheres to or, 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 pr- or promotes a right-wing uh, ideological view and a uh, right-wing um, extremist is that the extremist position, um, as I said earlier, uh, seeks to undermine democracy, seeks to destroy democracy, doesn't want any other voices at the table. Uh, and so whether you are talking about a... Um, a, a right-wing extremist view that is motivated by a, a racist, you know, a, a pure race type uh, agenda or um, deeply uh, misogynist or eco-fascist. There are whole, there's a whole panoply of isms that fall under right-wing extremism. All of them share the view that a democratic society needs to be broken down, undermined and, and replaced with a, a fascist or a authoritarian rule. And, um, They might couch, the right-wing extremists, though, what they are very clever at doing is couching their arguments in um, the same kind of language that right-wing ideology might use, and particularly in what you might consider to be non-threatening concepts of patriotism and family and and heritage and culture. Now, you know, I'm pro-family. I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of my ethnic heritage. Um, but, you know, there is a difference between that and between using those generally positive notions as a gateway to take people to more divisive and hate-filled positions. Um, the other thing about right-wing extremism and violent right-wing extremism is that uh, the right-wing extremist groups are often quite savvy when it comes to the laws of any particular country. And that is, um, we hear from experts, we hear from security agencies that these right-wing extremist groups are often, um, uh, their radicalization does not openly seek to provoke provoke violence often because they know that's the threshold they need to stay just below, particularly in public forums, in order to avoid uh, prescription uh, or other types of sanctions upon them. And so... The, the challenge uh, when we think about keeping Australians safe in relation to right-wing extremism and violent right-wing extremism is how do we, is ensuring that the tools that we have are fit for purpose to, to tackle this threat. Um, the last thing I'd observe is that most of the right-wing, many of the right-wing extremists um, 
operate in plain sight. They operate on social media platforms like uh, Twitter and Facebook. And, you know, if you look at the U.S. Capitol attacks, none of us should have been surprised about them because uh, in many ways they were openly recruiting and promoting the actions they were seeking to carry out online. Um, But nonetheless, right-wing extremist groups will often seek to use those platforms to recruit people in and then transfer them to encrypted messaging services uh, where they then fuel... Um, and seek to radicalise towards violence. Look, we, and we'll come back to a few of the uh, the really fascinating hooks there, the, the question of whether the tools are for responding to this are fit for purpose. Also the question of the uh, the responsibilities, if you like, of the private sector and tech companies on this. But I, I firstly want to look a bit more at the actual scale of the challenge here because you've quoted, uh, again, the proportion, if you like, of investigative resources uh, that, that ASIO is putting into right-wing extremism it's still very hard to quantify the scale of this problem. And I'm reminded as a, a bit of a, I think quite a significant historical aside, that this isn't the first time Australia's had a right-wing extremist threat. You know, I think if you look at the um, the 1920s and the 1930s, uh, and I think you as a former uh, Premier of New South Wales, uh, you know, will we'll, um, may, may, maybe respond to this in a certain way when, of course, the, you know, the, 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 essentially the paramilitaries of the, the New Guard were a movement uh, really challenging uh, a lot of the, uh, the democratic institutions at the time. Of course, the Sydney Harbour Bridge uh, opening was upstaged by... Uh, by, by the new guard, and that's you know was sort of celebrated in certain circles. So there have been times in the past where what we would consider now to be paramilitaries have operated in Australia, um, but it's been very rare to see this actually break out into any kind of large scale violence or or threat to the authority of the state. So to really move beyond my little aside there, um, and a great bit of historical research that I'd love my students to to get into, how do we measure? the scale of the problem now and how can we tell whether we are actually allocating the right resources and priority to it? Mm. Uh, One, your observation about that this is not a new phenomenon in Australia is true. Uh, And and, and in many cases in the the past, it has been a fringe element. Um, I think that the big difference we see now uh, is, one, uh, that we're not just talking about your traditional Uh, skinheads and neo-Nazi groups. We are talking about um, quite a a wide range of organizations um, with different motivating ideologies. And and there's a fluid ideology um, uh, kind of approach that some of these right-wing extremist groups take where they mix in, you know, whether it's environmentalism, um, misogyny, uh, racial purity, uh, anti-Semitism, anti-Islam, anti-immigration, populism, economic nationalism, all of these kinds of, they blend together in these various manifestos that individuals um, uh, craft and draft and then use, then groups use as recruiting tools. Um, So that's the first thing. We are not talking just about your your traditional, if I can use that term, older style neo-Nazi and skinhead groups. Um, I think we're we're also not, we're also dealing with groups that are able to connect easily online with groups overseas. And so you see the ability for groups in the UK, in Canada, and the United States to reach into Australia through the internet to to gather together like-minded individuals, to instigate groups to start here. Um, The other thing that is is, um, 
uh, happening is that people are starting to travel from Australia overseas to place to sections of the Ukraine, for example, to train paramilitarily train um, with uh, with extreme right wing extremist groups. So, from a how do we measure it perspective, I think there are different metrics about the online presence, about the number of individuals that um, uh, that have come to ASIO's attention. Uh, the number of groups and that whether or not they're proliferating or or or, um, or growing, um, and the number of people who we are aware have travelled overseas. So, for example, you know, in 2019, it's been reported that the Ukraine um, referred seven individuals to the AFP and Home Affairs who had gone to train with paramilitary groups overseas. Um, so, but by every metric that is publicly available. Um, it's clear that ASIO and the AFP are taking this quite seriously uh, and have indicated in, in public forums that there has been a significant growth accelerated by COVID. Um, in terms of is, is right-wing extremism uh, the dominant terrorist threat, um, you know, my understanding and advice that has been given publicly um, by ASIO is that Islamic extremism remains the primary terrorist threat to Australia, but uh, that in many ways right-wing extremism is, is rapidly catching up to it. And I think it's worth just reminding listeners that the, um, I, I think we, when, you, when you talk both about uh, those aspects and also the international dimension that, of course, one of the, uh, you know, one of the really most uh, tragic and compelling ways that this issue was brought to everyone's mm-hmm. attention was the, the Christchurch massacre, uh, which was committed by an Australian national, something that's, you know, a matter of great, of great national shame. Yeah, and, and can I say, Rory, I'm, um, I'm still uh, disappointed and, and somewhat frustrated that we haven't had a real proper conversation in this country since the Christchurch shooting to the extent to which the person that committed those acts was radicalised in this country. And we have just seen the um, New Zealand Royal Commission hand down its report into that shooting and it makes the observation that there were radical voices in groups in Australia that contributed to that individual's radicalisation. And so um, we can't pretend that this is just a problem that is reaching our shores through the internet. There are voices, some of them in mainstream media, by the way, some of them in, dare I say, mainstream politics that are encouraging or at least giving comfort to these type of extremist groups. And, you know, I think this is a part of our challenge in when we think about how do we keep Australians safe is having that conversation with the Australian community about what is happening uh, when it comes to the spread of right-wing extremism. Look, I want to move on to some of the, you know, the very practical policy, what do we do about it uh, matters, because that's really, I think, where uh, where we need to get to in uh, in all national security issues. Before I do that, I wanted also just to uh, keep open that conversation for a moment uh, about some of the relativism that seems to creep into conversations about any form of extremism or indeed political violence. And I note that, um, you know, there have been some arguments put, of course, that Australia, while Australia should be concerned about right-wing extremism, this should always be in the context of and alongside all the other forms of extremism, left, right, jihadists, you know, eco-fascism, as you've mentioned it, you know, you you name it. Um, You know, to what extent do you think that's a useful uh, part of the debate? Well, I don't think it's useful to try to equivocate 
uh, between Islamic extremism, right-wing extremism, and other types of extremist views. And you know, this is not just my view. This is the view that ASIO has put uh, to the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security in our inquiry into um, extremism. You know, that things like, while there is, there is a thing that is known as left-wing extremism, you, the reality is, according to ASIO, that is not a significant threat in Australia. And so when political leaders seek to say, to almost try to equivocate between these groups and say, oh, they're, 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 you know, I take seriously any form of extremism, left or right. Well, the reality is that, um, and this isn't a partisan comment, it's a comment based in what is happening and the advice of security agencies, the, the reality is that right-wing extremism is a real and present threat in Australia and left-wing extremism is not. Islamic extremism is a real and present threat to Australians, uh, but other forms of extremism are not. So, you know, the, um, I don't think it's helpful uh, to try and make a, a, a direct link or a whataboutism uh, when it comes to uh, raising other forms of extremism. You know, if we're serious about keeping Australians safe, we have to understand what the threat is and what is motivating it and how we best tackle it. Uh, and I guess at the same time, it's, it's understandable that agencies are going to be vigilant for changes in that landscape for for, for different manifestations of terrorism and extremism to emerge over time? Uh, look, absolutely. And, you know, uh, should they be? Of course they should be. And, you know, the Victorian police made an observation that, you know, one of their concerns is about a reaction to right-wing extremism emanating from left-wing extremist groups. But there isn't evidence that that is what is happening. Um, and, you know, as I, I, I keep repeating, you know, the advice of, of the AFP commissioner and the ASIO director general and as well as the Secretary of Home Affairs, is that this is a growing problem in Australia that has accelerated during COVID. And that seems like a pretty good spot for us to take a quick break. We will be back in just a minute to hear more from Senator Christina Keneally and Rory Medcalf on the threat of right-wing extremism here on the National Security Podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So let's get to the heart then of the conversation, because mm-hmm. uh, which is really about what to do. The uh, mm-hmm. so the, the question is really is government doing enough about the problem, particularly the Commonwealth government, but more specifically, do we actually have the tools 
uh, to deal with this. Are the tools that were developed, for example, over the past 20 years in very, uh, I think, effectively dealing with jihadist terrorism in Australia, uh, are they fit for purpose? What do we need to do? Mm. Uh, Yeah, this is really the question that's confronting the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. And and last December, Labor moved a motion in the House of Representatives and, you know, for a, um, from an academic perspective, you might be interested to know that's the first time that uh, the opposition has moved a motion to make a referral to the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. Most referrals, well, all referrals up until now have been made uh, by the executive, but the Intelligence Services Act allows for that for uh, either chamber of the parliament to refer something. So we decided that the it was a, nearly a year since ASIO Director General Mike Burgess had given that threat assessment and highlighted the growing threat of right-wing extremism. We had seen little response from the government. Indeed, um, Minister Dutton seek to often sought to downplay, dismiss or ignore uh, the threat or to make that equivocation between left-wing extremism. And so we sought you know, really supported by a number of multicultural groups um, to move that motion in the House of Representatives. It was going to be moved by Ed Husick and Josh Burns in the um, in the lower house. In the end, the government came to the, the party. I don't think they wanted to vote against it, and and they wanted to um, they wanted to make sure that they had some role in shaping the terms of reference. So I worked with Peter Dutton. Um, we made that referral. Look, the, the, when you ask about the tools, I think the tools are, um, it's the fundamental question because the motivating ideology matters. The organizational structures matter and the access to weaponry matters. And so when we talk about right-wing extremism, we are talking about groups that are more savvy than jihadist groups when it comes to staying below the prescription threshold. We are talking about um, groups that have evolving ideologies. There is something predictable about Islamic jihadism. It's based on a a set of doctrines and teachings, and you can somewhat confidently predict the end um, goals or objectives. There's a fluidity in right-wing extremism. There's a geographic dispersion in right-wing extremism that doesn't uh, isn't present in Islamic jihadism in Australia you you know you can pretty confidently predict where you will find Islamic extremists that is not the case when it comes to right-wing extremism and it is often spread across rural and regional parts of Australia which is a big challenge to security agencies um, then you have the fact that right-wing extremist groups are fluid in their um, in their organizational structure they will often Um, exist for a while under one banner, um, disband and rejoin under another. Uh, And the glorification of individuals is a big um, aspect of right-wing extremism. So whether you're talking about the Christchurch shooter, the El Paso shooter, um, uh, the Columbine shooter, the um, shooter in in Denmark, uh, all of these individual, uh, all of these, uh, sorry, the Oslo shooter, not Denmark, um, all of these um, individuals have written manifestos. They're easily available online. They are recruiting tools. One manifesto builds upon the other. And so the role of individuals is really important. And lastly, the access to weaponry. Um, the AFP tell us that right-wing extremists have more ready access to firearms uh, than other extremist groups. And so when we think about our tools for pre- prescription thresholds, um, foreign fighter legislation, uh, community um, consultation and community partnership, countering violent extremism, uh, where radicalization occurs online largely, you know, the tools that we have 
I would strongly argue, are not fit for purpose when it comes to right-wing extremism. And that's the point of the inquiry, to, uh, to help government determine what steps it can take. And we might come at the end of the conversation back to the role of that committee, uh, which, which of course you're, you're on, because um, not only is that very useful for our students and any of our students listening in our courses on national security policy or law or concepts, this is all, you know, this, this podcast is absolute, I think, uh, gold for them. But but I also want to, be, want to be turning a little bit to the place of bipartisanship uh, in, in really making that committee work. Let's come back to that, though. Let's stick with the the what to do, and I'll look at three other dimensions, if I may. One is the role beyond government. Uh, is it all government's responsibility? Is it uh, is it the private sector? Is it tech companies? Let's go to that first, and then I'll go to a few other issues because, of course, you know, it, an argument can be made that tech companies profit from the very channels of communication and social media that right-wing extremists are using or any extremists are using for that matter for propaganda, lies and the motivation of violence. Um, how's Australia doing policy-wise on, on those issues? Mm, yeah, uh, this is an area that the committee has to look at because uh, the role of tech companies is fundamentally important given how these groups use uh really open source, Facebook, Twitter, and other, you know, to, to spread their messages. And they're very clever as well. They will often use language or words that um, that are code words so that people know to search for them or symbols, online symbols as a way to kind of, you know, to the untrained eye, you wouldn't realise that this is a, a symbol, that this person is a is a part of a right-wing extremist group, but you, if you were looking for it or you knew to look for it, you would. So I think... Um, when I think about though the role of, of technology companies, is a few things. One is you know the um, uh, the ability to intersect when people are searching for certain words or phrases or groups. And in the United States, I know there's a, a group called Exit America, which helps people exit right wing extremist groups. And they partnered with Facebook to intersect when people are making those searches to tr- to take them so the algorithm takes them somewhere else takes them to uh, maybe to the Exit Exit America's page or takes them to uh, a, a different set of messages than what the ones they are looking for. Uh, I think there are other things that you know, Australia needs to think about. We've got our abhorrent violent content legislation, which is about removing violent imagery, such as when the Christchurch shooter broadcast his, um, his terrorist attack. Uh, but we need to help... Um, Social media companies understand, you know, what are the, you know, what are the things that we determine are unacceptable. Whether it is hate speech, whether it is hate symbols, and I note that this week the um, there's been a bipartisan recommendation in Victoria to ban the swastika, for example. So I think there's work that we can do um, with social media companies um, to give them better tools. I note that in the United Kingdom they've got a white paper right now that's looking at defining hate speech online. Um, The other thing that would assist is if groups were prescribed as terrorist organisations or individuals, as happens in New Zealand, can be prescribed as terrorist organisations or entities. And that would give social media companies some clear guidance about whether individuals or individual manifestos should be shared online or, or groups should be able to operate online. So, so clearly we're pointing here to a very, very sort of an interplay, a very interactive um, response of, of government and private sector. Uh, 
What about in other countries? And I think, uh, you know, you've mentioned a number, number of countries where atrocities have happened and other number of countries also where, where different measures have been taken. What can Australia learn, do you think, from the experience of other countries and their policy responses? You know, who does it badly? Who does it well? Mm. I, I know that you would have your own special concerns, for example, at watching what's unfolding in the United States. So there are some areas where we have advantages uh, over other countries. For example, in the United States, they are not able under their terrorist legislation to prescribe domestic groups as terrorist groups. And I know that the Biden administration has flagged that they are looking at that. Um, They've got their own Senate inquiry up into right-wing extremism. And so, you know, they are hamstrung, if you will, by not being able to do that. So the only group... Um, that I'm aware of that the U.S. has prescribed is the Russian imperial movement um, because so many of these other groups are, are present domestically in the United States. We don't have that constraint. Um, but New Zealand, as I pointed out, can um, prescribe entities, in, uh, individuals as terrorist entities, and that's a massive benefit because it just means sharing a manifesto, promoting a person or, or selling it, um, promoting that person's um, image or, or story online um, becomes um, uh, an outlawed activity. And I think given the, the role that the glorification of individuals play in right-wing extremism, that's a, that is something that the um, Intelligence and Security Committee needs to consider very seriously. Um, I would note that Australia, um, which has now just this week prescribed its first right-wing extremist group as a terrorist entity, um, the, the Morrison government prescribed a group in the um, UK called Sonnenkrieg Division. Um, that group has almost no presence in Australia. But yet um, Australia is the last of the Five Eyes countries that has prescribed a right-wing extremist group as a terrorist organisation. Now, Canada, for example, um, has taken many steps to they've prescribed many groups um the proud boys adam waffen division the base the russian imperial movement they previously prescribed combat 18 and blood and honor those groups have local chapters here in australia now if canada our ally our five eyes partner is prescribing organizations that have local chapters in australia i think there is a serious question about why those groups aren't prescribed here National action in the UK is prescribed in the UK. National action has direct links to individuals and groups here in Australia. So uh, there are some serious questions um, for the government to answer as to why they aren't moving on these other um, organisations. But, um, uh, you know, the government might argue that these groups don't meet the, the, the listing I would just point threshold. I would point out we have prescribed 26 Islamic jihadist groups, some of which are present only in East African villages that have no interest in Australia. Sometimes we prescribe groups because our allies have done it. And if you go back to the prescription legislation when it passed in Australia, the the, um, attorney general at the time made the point. We prescribe for two reasons. One, because it gives our agencies tools to fight these, these groups. And two, because it sends a clear message about what we as Australia reject. And so prescription um, is an important tool to say we as Australia reject the racist, hate-filled, division, anti-democratic views of these organisations. Look, I think you raise some um, um, some really fascinating and important concerns about how Australia can work with work better, I think, with international partners. And of course, 
on so many other issues now, whether we're looking at cyber or foreign interference or many of the other security challenges Australia faces, uh, it, it is striking that that Five Eyes and some of these other uh, small group international arrangements uh, have proven to be the way to go pursuing solidarity in those frameworks. Mm. So I think it, it'll be very useful to look at this again in the Five Eyes context as, as time goes on. On that, can um, I just say that yeah, both the please. United Kingdom and the USA have started their own um, parliamentary inquiries into right-wing extremism, which is something that um, I'm, I'm pretty confident that we on the PJCIS will um, be wanting to reach out to those inquiries, which will be happening the same time as ours. That's that's, um, that's that's great, and I can see uh, sort of plenty of potential for for interparliamentary yeah. <laughs> engagement yes. on on that. I'm, look, speaking of interparliamentary engagement, I guess I just want to make ask one last set of questions about the what to do before we begin to wrap up and look at the um, uh, the parliamentary committee uh, example. States and territories in Australia. We haven't really said a lot yet about the roles of states and territories in this in this uh, federation, and of course. In all sorts of frontline uh, countering extremism, uh, states and territories are really where it happens. Mm. So are they doing enough? Uh, and indeed, more generally, if I can ask you this, uh, as also I know a former Premier, um, are states and territories sufficiently equipped to deal with really the whole range of national security issues mm. that they now confront? Yeah, that's a really excellent question. Um, you know, as we know, states and territories are involved with the um, and through the through their police force with the Joint Counterterrorism um, Task Force. They work with the national agencies. And I think generally speaking, we have a very good cooperative arrangement between states, territories and, and federal agencies. Uh, and um, yet that's, I think, more at the pointy end, the investigatory end, um, the disruption end. Where I am more concerned is the extent to which federal and state agencies uh, have clear countering violent extremism programs, preventing radicalization, and community partnership and outreach programs. Uh, and it's very hard to determine, um, you know, what, if any, of the very small amount of money in the federal budget um, that goes towards those programs is going towards right-wing extremist programs. Um, secondly, um, you know, the, the uh, agencies and, and um, uh, people I speak to in government uh, will quite openly say, you know, they acknowledge one thing we have to do now that we haven't done is start talking to the community. You know, we, we brought the Islamic community into the conversation. We worked with parents and grandparents and teachers and schools and, and community leaders. When it comes to right-wing extremism, we're not yet having the conversation with the Australian community about what to look for, what are the signs, what to do if you start to you know, hear views from your, your son or daughter, but let's be blunt, it's more often a son, um, given the misogyny of these groups. Um, what do you do when you start to hear those types of messages? Who do you call? Do you take it seriously? And I you know, would say that you know, we, we are starting to get, and my colleague, Dr. Anna Lee, um, you know, we've run some seminars because people are reaching out to her and to others to say, I'm a coach, I'm a teacher, I'm a pastor. I don't know what to do when I see this, but I know there's something not right here. So that bringing the community, the community partnership has got to be part of it. And, you know, if you mentioned earlier other countries, you know, um, 
some of the Scandinavian countries have done a really good job of community um, advertising, community consultation, community um, awareness uh, and partnership. Um, and, you know, I would just reflect that here in Australia, we haven't had an anti-racism campaign since 2012. And, you know, if we talk, I began by saying, you know, we have to reinforce and uphold the values in every generation of our, of our community, lest we risk losing them. And, you know, even things like an anti-racism campaign can play a very important role in presenting a counter narrative to those views that um, would seek to um, divide us along racial lines. Thanks for taking it back to the community, and I am I am struck by that because I recall uh, very clearly a lot of the um, uh, the countering violent extremism campaigns of, of, of five or six years ago targeted, you know, very clearly and understandably at the time uh, at, at at Muslim communities. Look to be, to end the conversation. This has been, I think, a really a, a really valuable conversation, Senator. Uh, let's go to the question of how we can also try to get beyond politics and partisanship on these issues on, on dealing with threats to national security more broadly. And, and you've touched on some of this, but uh, it would be good to hear a little bit more about Australia's experience in the parliamentary committee system, notably the the committee that you're on, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, or I think PJCIS, as some people like to call it. Um, and this is getting a little wonkish, but I think it is very pointy. It is very relevant to outcomes. Can you share some views or experiences in that regard? What does the committee do and how does it work? Because I think for a lot of our listeners, that's probably a little bit of a mystery. <laughs> it's often um, referred to as a third chamber of parliament. And, and I think that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it is a, it is, there is a fair point to be made there that um, yeah, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security um, has its genesis really following the um, second Hope Royal Commission uh, when um, the Hawke government um, actually in contradiction with what Hope recommended, Hope wasn't um, all that keen on the idea of there being a parliamentary committee, but the Hawke government um, said, look, we think there needs to be space for a trusted group of parliamentarians to come together to in a bipartisan forum, forum to receive intelligence briefings, to oversight um, intelligence agencies and uh, to uh, make determinations in the national interest about national security laws and, and, and architecture. And so it, that was the genesis of the PJCIS. It's had a few different names, but it has remained... Um, largely uh, that, that that description still works for it. Um, it is a committee that is only made up of, of, of coalition and labor MPs because there is a view that it is a, a committee that represents the parties of government um, and it's not feasible or um, uh, to, to have a, a crossbench and independent voices on that committee. They, of course, still participate in all the legislative debates, um, but the work that the committee does, and in my experience now having been on it for almost two years, that it is that. It is a forum where um, partisan considerations are largely parked at the door, uh, where there is a genuine conversation um, in the national interest uh, and where um, generally speaking, though not always, um, the government takes up the recommendations of the PJCIS in terms of amending legislation. Um, you know, one example I'll share for your um, your um, 
listeners is, you know, that last year the um, government had a piece of legislation around, it was an identity matching bill. Um, and the PJCIS unanimously said to the government, this bill is just not fit for purpose. It has too many holes in it. it. We can't repair it. We think it's beyond amendment. We just tell you to take it back to the drawing board and come back later. And they did. They withdrew the bill. And so that kind of role is a really important one. And we didn't do that in a partisan way. We didn't make a partisan deal about it. Um, but I, I, I think the other thing I'd observe is that um, – you know, I referenced earlier that Labor in opposition had never sought to move a referral uh, to the PJCIS from the House of uh, from from a from the Parliament floor. That we took a view that it was the province of the government of the day. Um, but we 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 thought that this issue was too important um, and that it hadn't been receiving the proper attention. And our aim was really to get the government to to do the referral, which is what ultimately happened. But Labor deliberately decided that we would move that uh, motion from the House of Representatives because we could have moved it in the Senate, the government could have voted against it, and we still could have gotten it up. But we didn't want there to be a referral to the PJCIS that wasn't supported by the government. Um, we didn't want to set that precedent, even though it was legally possible. We didn't want to set that precedent. We took a view of the PJCIS. There is a bipartisan compact when it comes to national security. It doesn't always mean agreement. It doesn't mean that we don't, you know, have, have discussion. But um, we felt that if we were going to make a referral from the parliament, it really should have the support of the government. And ultimately, that is what happened. Well, thank you for all those valuable insights. I look forward to other opportunities, uh, Senator, to, uh, to hear you on the, on the podcast. Um, thank you again for your work and best wishes. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And a big thanks to Senator Keneally for coming onto the podcast to chat about the threat of right-wing extremism in Australia. Be sure to listen to the episodes we recorded on this issue back in 2019 with Nick Rasmussen, the former National Head of Counterterrorism in the United States, as well as Alex Mann, an investigative journalist from the ABC, Christy Campion, an academic from Charles Sturt University, and terrorism expert Jacinta Carroll. And also a big thanks to those who sent in their suggestions for what we should name this new pod stream. In the end, the winning entry actually came from an ANU colleague, so we can't give them the prize pack. That will instead be going to Paul Sigger for his entries, which were excellent. We'd also like to give a shout out to Chelsea, Ruth, Andrea, Amy and all the others who gave us entries but preferred to remain anonymous. There were some really good ones in there. We might read a few out in uh, coming episodes. But in the meantime, you too can join the discussion. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at the National Security Podcast, you can do so by way of Twitter using at Apps Policy Forum, or you can speak to me directly using at NatSecPod. Or you can go old school and drop us an email using podcasts at policyforum.net. Be sure to drop us a rating on whatever platform you podcast with. And if you feel like it, give us some feedback. We always take it seriously. We'd love to know how you think we could improve this podcast or any issues that you think that we might be able to discuss in coming episodes. So thanks very much for listening in today. And we'll catch you again soon on the National Security Podcast. Podcast.